Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of No Rain Date, your local news and interview podcast. I'm Josh Popichak, your host for No Rain Date and the publisher of Sock and Source, here with the headlines for the week ending April 22nd, 2021. As we are at the end of April, the primary election in Pennsylvania is now less than a month away, which means we're dialing up our pre-coverage of the election. We want our readers to be as informed as possible before every election, and particularly local elections, because local news is our bread and butter. So we have been publishing guides and lists of candidates to help introduce our readers to the crowded fields in some cases. So far, we've published lists of the candidates for both the Southern Lehigh School Board and Saucon Valley School Board. The Saucon Valley School Board story was just published on Thursday, or Wednesday, rather. Both of these stories are sort of previews. We plan to have more in-depth coverage before the primary with actual statements from the candidates who choose to participate in our guide. We've reached out to all of the school board candidates in Southern Lehigh and Saucon Valley who are reachable and hopefully all of them will reply and take advantage of this opportunity to make potential voters more aware of why they're running, what their positions are, what they hope to accomplish if they're elected to the school board, Just because it's a school board election doesn't mean it's not important. I think we all know that school boards are the taxing authority, the primary taxing authority for most property owners in the state of Pennsylvania. So for that reason alone, these elections have serious consequences. Beyond that, they're related to the education of our young people. And certainly, I think that the events of the past year have shined a spotlight on education among other areas in which the U.S. may be falling behind. That's certainly not a reflection on the local school districts in question per se. However, I don't think there's a school district in the country that couldn't improve on some aspect of their facilities, methodology, curricula, etc. So these elections are important for many reasons and we hope that you will be tuned in and of course registered to vote. The last day to register to vote in the May 18th primary election is coming up soon. It's May 3rd and it's easy to do that. You can register uh, online. Go to pavotes.com And also, the League of Women Voters has a lot of helpful information about Pennsylvania elections. Also, the county websites have quite a a bit of information for county residents. Uh, Northampton County has sample ballots for local residents to review. So you don't have to go into the poll on May 18th and feel confused or uncertain about what you're looking at. There's plenty of tools out there to educate yourself beforehand, and and we're a bridge to that information. So we take that role very seriously, and we hope that our, our readers do as well. We have recently debuted a new regular piece of content on Sock and Source, a column we're calling Olden Days. And in this series, we are featuring newspaper articles from a hundred years ago or or longer. These are available through the wonderful website called newspapers.com. For a, a relatively modest subscription fee, you can literally search millions of old newspapers going 
back into the 1800s in many cases. It's amazing the news that you will find. I'm having a good time just looking at old Hellertown and, and Lower Saucon news, and that's obviously the focus to start with for this column. I do hope to incorporate Coopersburg headlines from days of old, Fountain Hill. All of these communities were well established by 1900 and well before that, but the the period we're looking at primarily for mining these old stories is from about 1900 through 1922. One of the first ones I published the other day is pretty neat. It's a sort of a snapshot of what Hellertown was like in 1922. It was published by The Morning Call, and it's a, a half page, so it's a lengthy profile of the community. It includes both information that was current at that time and also a history of the Hellertown area from when it was founded in about 1742 up until 1922. There was already quite a bit of history obviously at that point but we've added a hundred years to it since then and interestingly in 2022 Hellertown will celebrate or mark the 150th anniversary of its incorporation, which was in 1872. I'm hitting you with a lot of twos here. But yes, 1872 was an important date in Hellertown history when it was incorporated as a borough. Uh, 1742 was the actual founding of the settlement of Hellertown. Those of you who were around in 1972 may remember the Hellertown Centennial, which was a, an extravaganza that lasted much of the year and featured parades and all kinds of hijinks in which the residents dressed up like the residents of Hellertown in 1872. I have written about that in the past. There are a lot of resources for remembering the centennial and you'll still find memorabilia floating around at uh, yard sales and so forth. And speaking of yard sales, we are having a community yard sale in Hellertown and Lower Saucon again this summer. The date has been set for Saturday, June 5th, and we will be bringing you more information about that in the coming weeks. However, Hellertown residents, if you want to participate in the yard sale, normally you need a yard sale permit, which is available from the borough for $5. However, as has traditionally been the case, Borough Council recently voted to waive the permit fee for participants in the community yard sale, so that will be waived on June 5th only. And in years past, uh, there have been well over 100 participating households. Just to be clear, the Hellertown Community Yard Sale is not a yard sale where everybody gathers in a central location, like a park. I know that's what some people think of as a community yard sale. In Hellertown, it's simply a lot of people deciding to have a yard sale on the same day. And since Hellertown is very compact, it's easy to hit a lot of yard sales that morning into the early afternoon. It's normally held from about 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. And like I said, We'll be bringing you the details of that in the near future. Getting back to local history, Lower Saucon Township Historical Society is encouraging the promotion of historic preservation with a photo contest that they recently launched. This will be for prizes. The first place winner will actually receive a $350 cash prize, so that's pretty generous. There are requirements for the contest. The most important one is where you take the picture. Since this is a local historical society, they obviously want local photos of historic locations. And so they do need to be taken in Hellertown Borough or Lower Saucon Township. For the other rules and how to submit your photo, please refer to our article, which is featured on the Saucon Source homepage. In local arts news, our friend Larry Dibert has another book out. Larry is a prolific author of mainly paranormal novellas and, and short stories, novels. 
but he has also tackled other subjects, including nonfiction. Larry's latest book is actually a revamping of his first book called Requiem for a Vampire, and I can actually remember writing about Requiem for a Vampire way back in 2007 when he published the first Requiem, and he actually wrote most of it in 1999. So this book is actually over 20 years old. And we sat down with Larry recently to talk about it and why he wanted to update it. There were just certain things about his choices as a writer that that he came to regret. So after so many years of, of thinking about that and ruminating on it, he just decided to rewrite it and update the things that he wasn't crazy about, including his main character's name. He also added some some different locations and updated the ending. So that's pretty exciting for, for fans of Larry's. He's also hosting a book signing for the Requiem for a Vampire 2021 this Saturday, April 24th at the Moravian Bookshop in downtown Bethlehem. That's from 1 to 3 p.m., And, uh, of course, Larry will be happy to see you if you're a fan of his writing or or just paranormal in general. You might want to stop by. Of course, please be safe. Social distancing and masking are still in place, so please shop for your latest book responsibly. In business news, we sat down with a local realtor, Allison Corradini, to talk about the state of the real estate market, not just in Saucon Valley, but in Pennsylvania and all around the country. We have a story about Allison, who's a realtor with Keller Williams in Allentown and is also part of a company called Rosette Homes, which is a a unique sort of business in which she is a partner with her partner, Fritz Rosette, who's a general contractor. They are helping clients together in amazing ways. And one of those ways, of course, is if Allison has a potential home buyer, she's able to bring Fritz along on a showing, and he can sort of scan the, the home and notice things that you or I may not notice because we don't have 30-some years of a contractor's experience. Obviously, that can be tremendously beneficial for buyers, particularly right now because, as Allison explained, normally you can get a home inspection and use that in negotiations. Currently, because the market is so skewed towards the seller's market, home inspections, if they are being done at all, are for informational purposes only. So that makes the pre-sale review that Fritz is available for even more important. Allison took the time to explain a lot of other things about the current state of the market and where we may be headed in the future. Obviously, interest rates could be creeping up this year. Right now, they're very low still, and that's a factor in this boom where there's record low inventory and just not enough houses to bid on. She explained that for a, a house that's you know turnkey and move-in condition, you can expect there to be easily 20 offers on it. So that's pretty remarkable, and that's a lot different from when I was looking for a house 10 years ago. I'm certainly glad it wasn't that competitive then. That adds a lot to the stress levels for the the home buyers and of course realtors are party to that so you want somebody with a lot of skill certainly and Allison has experience and her clients are seeing her praises so check out our story about her and uh, we hope you'll enjoy that. Lastly this week we are thinking about the environment with Earth Day and once again I want to give a shout out to the Lower Saucon Township Historical Society. They are the adopters of Countryside Lane and last weekend the volunteers, the members of the LSTHS were out there picking up litter, 
may sound like a small thing, but really that's what keeps our community looking great. The, the hard work of volunteers like the members of the Historical Society. And that is part of the Township's Adopt-A-Road program where organizations or businesses or even families can adopt uh, roads. There are 40 roads throughout the township actually that have been adopted over the years and typically they are cleaned twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall. They have to be cleaned at least twice a year as, as part of the commitment that the adopter makes. The supplies for this cleanup, for the cleanups rather, are provided courtesy of the Bethlehem Landfill, which is located in Lower Saucon Township. When the litter is picked up in bags, the bags are tied, left along the side of the road, and then the Township Public Works Department comes and collects the filled bags and disposes of them. It's great that we have so many people that care to do that in our community. It would be even better if we didn't have litter in the first place. That's one of my pet peeves, but I guess we're always going to have litter, so the silver lining is that we have people who do care. Certainly, if the township ever sees fit to add additional roads to their list, Sock and Source would be interested in adopting one, and I'm sure many others would be too. I'm not sure if that's something that's in the cards, but I did notice that as of 2021, all of the available roads have been adopted, and they don't normally become available again once they've been adopted. They're not like houses, so it would be neat if some of the other local roads maybe could uh, be added to that list. I'm sure there's room for more. But that's our news roundup for this week, April 22nd, 2021. Thank you for joining us, and we'll have more headlines for you next week. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sockin Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source, which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options, including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels, and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so, and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online, and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members, and thank you for considering becoming a future member. It's my pleasure this week on No Rain Date to welcome our interview guest, Christopher Cucker, president of the Wildlands Conservancy, which is based in Emmaus. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much, Josh. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of the Wildlands Conservancy, which has been an organization that's been protecting land and waterways in the Lehigh Valley for nearly 50 years. I didn't realize it had been around that long until I, I looked it up on, and did some research on the website. But Chris, if you could start off by telling us a little bit about the history of the organization, how it's evolved, and of course, your involvement, which I know doesn't go back that far, but it goes back quite a ways. 
Uh, yeah, Wildlands Conservancy was started as a nonprofit organization back in 1973. There were 16 visionary citizens, we like to say, that all put $20 in a pot you know, to incorporate Wildlands Conservancy. They knew then what we know now, how important open space is and, and, and a clean environment. So they started the Conservancy back in 1973, really with the mission to protect and restore critical natural areas and waterways and educate the community to create a legacy of a healthy, sustainable environment uh, for future generations. The organization started out in Bethlehem, and then in 1975, Wildlands Conservancy received a, a very generous gift from Leonard Parker Poole, the founder of Air Products, which was the Poole Wildlife Sanctuary that was entrusted to Wildlands Conservancy. And in 1975, after that gift, the organization set its offices up and its education programming on the beautiful, at the time, 72-acre Pool Wildlife Sanctuary. And uh, the offices of Wildlands Conservancy have been there ever since. You know, from those humble beginnings, the organization has protected over 56,000 acres of open space, which is a really impressive amount of acres when you think about, you know, 56,000 acres. And we've done that through a variety of, of, of partnerships. We work very closely with with state agencies like the Pennsylvania Game Commission, Bureau of Forestry, Bureau of State Parks. Out of that 56,000 acres of open space, Wildlands has transferred about 35,000 acres to state agencies to create state parks and state forests and state game lands. In addition, the organization has about 2,900 acres that it owns and manages in 14 nature preserves. In addition to that, the organization has about 8,000 acres where we own the development rights of, of about 77 parcels, and those are called conservation easements. So, you know, the organization started out uh, primarily as a land trust, not only protecting land, but also connecting people to it. The uh, environmental education component of the organization has been a really important part of the mission really since the inception of Wildlands back in 1973. We do about a thousand education programs a year and the whole goal behind that is to connect people to nature. Uh, We feel very passionately that if people get out and experience nature firsthand, they'll have a positive experience and they'll hopefully develop a sense of stewardship for those natural resources and want to preserve, protect, restore, and enhance those, those natural environments. In addition to that, we do a lot of ecological restoration work a lot of trail development work, and we do you know additional things to help enhance and uh, and protect really what makes this region so special, which is which is its natural resources. The organization primarily focuses on Lehigh River watershed, which includes Lehigh and Northampton counties. It's about a ten county area, which is about thirteen hundred and fifty square miles. So, you know, we have programming in that whole landscape, and we really focus our attention and our uh, programmatic expertise in that 10 county we have river watershed area yeah uh, you would also mention josh about my my involvement yes with wildlands and i i wasn't around in 1973 in fact I actually was born in 1973 <laughs> so it makes it very easy to, for me to remember how many years old wildlands conservancy is but go. i've been very fortunate to be with the organization for 25 years you know growing up here in the lehigh valley i always had a passion and a love for nature and the natural environment and you know, growing up, I had the opportunity to experience nature firsthand with my, my father and my grandfather, you know, hunting and fishing and hiking and those types of things, and really always wanted to have a career in which I could protect what was really so special for me, which was the natural environment here in the Lehigh Valley. So after graduating college at Susquehanna University, I applied for this organization I'd never heard of before called Wildlands Conservancy. They hired me to, to do their water quality testing and, and some stream restoration work. About 13 years ago, I became the uh, president of the organization. So it's been a wonderful time for me to be able to, you know, focus my my career, my passion on protecting the wonderful natural resources we have here in the community. And we've just built a, a wonderful team and a wonderful board and great uh, you know, community of support in order to fulfill our mission right, right here in the Lehigh Valley. That's a great summation of your history and and the Wildlands Conservancy's history. Just going back to the very beginning, what was the motivation, I guess, for for those founders to start the land trust, which you said it was then? Were they concerned about the rate of development in the area, which has obviously only sort of accelerated since then? Yeah, that's a a great question. That they were very concerned about development that was occurring on, on South Mountain, uh, which is the green backdrop of the South here, the Lehigh Valley. And those original founders had reached out to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and asked what they could do. And they got a letter back from Maurice Goddard, 
and said, you know, basically, if you want to protect open space, you know, start start a land trust. And that's what they did. In my office at the beautiful Dorothy Rutter Pula Sanctuary, I actually have a sticker that's from back from, from like 1974, which says Save South Mountain. And that's really was the call to arms for the 16 individuals to come together to form Wildlands Conservancy. It was about protecting South Mountain. Now, obviously, our mission has expanded well beyond, you know, South Mountain. We do have several nature preserves in the South Mountain Corridor, but we have nature preserves extending up into the Poconos. Our Thomas Darling Nature Preserve, for example, is 1,400 acres up in the Poconos. We have nature preserves that range from nine acres along the Lehigh River to 11-acre island in the Lehigh River to a 1,400-acre nature preserve up at Tom Darling. So, yeah, it was really a call to action because these citizens saw that the Lehigh Valley was changing, and they particularly wanted to protect South Mountain because it's just such an ecological gem Mm -hmm. and it's such a significant you know backdrop of the Lehigh Valley. Well I I think we owe them a debt of gratitude for for having that vision because yeah I mean people take it for granted that you know the mountains there and it's this lush green backdrop like you said but it doesn't have to be that way it could have been covered in lights and buildings I guess if people hadn't had the vision. Yeah, yeah they, we were very fortunate that those individuals came forward and started Wildlands, not only because of the protection of South Mountain, but also the protection of the Kittatin Ridge or the Blue Mountain. As we look to the north in the Lehigh Valley, that's been a major effort of Wildlands Conservancy since its inception is to keep, I like to say, to keep the Blue Mountain green. There's about 20,000 acres that have been protected on the Kittatin Ridge or Blue Mountain in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and Wildlands Conservancy is responsible for about 13,000 acres hmm. you know, within that uh, that landscape. So. You know, our major efforts from a land protection perspective is the Kittini Ridge, South Mountain, and the Lehigh River Corridor, as well as the headwaters of the Lehigh River, because it's so important to protect the source of the Lehigh, because if we protect the land where the water comes from, it's going to improve the quality quite dramatically, because the whole organization's really focused its efforts wholly on the Lehigh River watershed. So, yeah, it's been it's been really great to see, you know, kind of this patchwork of protected properties coming together. You know, we've had a, a vision, you know, for a long time of, of not only protecting those those significant landscapes, but also, you know, having greenways and trail corridors to connect those open spaces together. And, you know, our vision for the Lehigh Valley is to be able to have an interconnected network of greenways and trails and protected open space that's you know, obviously important for, for wildlife, but it's also important for people as well, where they recreate and get a little respite from the day-to-day activity. So, you know, the Lehigh Valley is very fortunate to have an organization like Wildlands Conservancy focusing on its uh, environmental health and, and, and protection of the critical natural resources that, again, make this region so special. Right, right, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about what you just alluded to, which is access to the lands that are preserved? Because I suppose you have to balance the need to provide public access to them with protecting the wildlife, the flora, the fauna that are found in them. So is that difficult sometimes? Is that challenging? Well, you know, it's, it's a challenge for sure. Our land protection efforts are science-based, you know, so we focus our land protection efforts on the uh, piece of the property that have the highest ecological value or recreational value. And again, one of our major initiatives is to not only protect that land, but then connect people to that land to develop that sense of stewardship. So you know, we have to balance use with preservation. When we do protect a piece of property and make it one of our nature preserves, we, we always do an ecological inventory of that property and, and identify where the you know, special habitats are or habitats of concern are located. And then we devise our access you know, to, to protect those areas, ensuring that you know, the value of that piece of property is met not only now, but also you know, for future generations as well. So you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance because we want people out and experiencing nature. You know, at the same time, we want to make sure that we're managing and having that property continue to provide, you know, the significant eco- ecological value, which, which made it so important for us, you know, for us to protect. We always tell our visitors, you know, uh, we want to have visitors to our sanctuaries that are open to the public, but we ask them to, you know, again, respect the private property, respect the signage, and stay on the trails where indicated. So that goes a long way to ensuring that we you know, we don't negatively impact these beautiful, you know, natural areas that have been protected for now and for future generations. You mentioned also conservation easements earlier. Can you maybe explain in layman's terms what a conservation easement is and why they're important? And those properties, are those open to the public or are they, you know, 
private but preserved? That's a great question, Josh. I get that question asked quite often. As a land trust, you know, we look at uh, at all the tools in our toolbox to protect property. In some cases, we purchase a piece of property and then transfer it to a state agency because it's adjacent to, to our existing state-owned property. In some cases, we retain that as one of our nature preserves and make it open to the public. But in some cases, people want to protect their property, but they still want to own it. And that's where the conservation easement comes in, where we typically get those either donated to the rights to us, or in some cases, we, we, we purchase those rights or some of the municipalities help us purchase those rights. And therefore, the individual still owns the property, but they've given to us or we've bought from them the right to develop the property. So as a land trust, we ensure that that restriction will be met forever. So we monitor those properties and we ensure that that the conservation values that made that property so important are, are, are met in perpetuity. So, you know, like no subdivision, no buildings. I mean, each easement's a little different, but generally speaking, once the property's under easement with us, there's typically no further, you know, quote unquote development or buildings that can go on that particular property. So it becomes a really great tool to protect open space, but at the same time, have that still under, under private ownership. Now, with those conservation easements, those are typically not open to the public because they are privately owned. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why we balance our land preservation efforts. We have some properties we protect that are nature preserves that are open to the public. We have some that are easements that are not. And then we have some that are you know, transferred to state agencies for state parks and state forests and those types of things. So out of the 56,000 that we've protected, about 8,000 of those are privately held in conservation easements. Gotcha. That's interesting to to note the difference there. And I would imagine that, I mean, in many cases, these agreements take years to to finalize. Are you constantly sort of like identifying parcels and then beginning the process of preserving them? Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. That's that's another great question. We we have uh, developed a land selection criteria. We utilize geographic information system mapping and have identified, for example, in the upper Lehigh River watershed, we've identified 80 parcels that are important to protect from an ecological perspective, from a recreational perspective, or from a connectivity perspective. And then we are, you know, actively going out and trying to, you know, to protect those those pieces of property. We do the same thing here in the Lehigh Valley. We're very fortunate to have great partners at the Lehigh Valley Planning Commission and and many of the local municipalities who are also interested in protecting, you know, significant ecological properties and recreational properties. So, you know, we utilize the planning commission's plans and comprehensive plan. Our work is is entirely consistent with the Lehigh Valley Planning Commission's comprehensive plan. We also did a plan for the entire Lehigh River watershed called the Lehigh River Watershed Management Plan. We did that back in 2003 and then updated a, a couple of years ago. And that also lists a whole host of recommendations to improve and enhance the quality of the Lehigh River. And it also identifies you know, restoration projects and land protection projects that are important to complete. You know, from a land protection perspective, you know, some of these projects take years. The fastest we ever purchased a piece of property was 31 days. It was a really critical piece up on the Kidney Ridge, and it was going for sheriff sale. And we reached out to our partners at the Pennsylvania Game Commission and we're able to protect that piece of property in 31 days. Hmm. But some of them take decades. I'll tell you a quick story. I'm sitting in the office at the sanctuary. You know, we get a knock on the door. And again, it's an, it's, it's an office. So when somebody knocks on the door, I know that they have never been there before, right? Because it's you just walk in and <laughs> say your name and, mm-hmm. and that type of thing. So a gentleman comes in and he said he uh, wants to talk to somebody in the land protection department. And some of our folks... We're busy, so I you know, walked out and, and met him and, and, and brought him back in my office. And he asks me if the offer still stands on this in, individual's piece of property. And I'm thinking, I'm like, gosh, I don't remember, I don't remember this name. So I called in one of our land protection specialists, and you know, we still can't remember what this name is. So here it turns out that back in 1987, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Neff, who was a very instrumental person in our in our organization in protecting significant amounts of open space, sent this individual a letter asking if she would be interested in selling her 20 acres on the, on the Blue Mountain. She's now 99 years old. Huh. She's of sound mind and body. And she wanted to know if her offer of $400 an acre still stood for that piece of property. <laughs> wow. You know, and we were like, 
oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> this property is worth well more than 400. Yeah. She had the original letter, you know, that we sent her back in 1987. You know, I told her that it's worth more. She said, no, you were interested back in 87 and I want to get my affairs in order. I want to see it protected. And we, we pretty much bought it sight on scene, you know, for $400 an acre and then transferred it to the, you know, to the Pennsylvania Game Commission. So, and that happened, you know, like two years ago, three years ago. So, you know, we plant these seeds really throughout the entire community. You never know when one of them is going to sprout, but right. it was really neat to, to have that, that letter, that part of that history of wildlands and work that Charlie Neff had done, you know, 30 plus years before, you know, come to fruition and, and see a piece of property protected. And that's heartwarming too, because I mean, I could imagine that could easily be worth 10 times that, you know, today. Oh yeah. 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 And that's the other thing, Josh, that I'm, I'm just so amazed that it's, it's just the, you know, the generosity that people have when it comes to their land, you know, wildlands as a land trust provides an opportunity to, to, you know, create that legacy and protect those, you know, those pieces of property in perpetuity. And we've had, you know, some very significant gifts like the gift from Leonard Poole, which I mentioned, you know, Bob Rodale helped us establish the South Mountain Preserve with the donation of the Walters Track back, back in 1975. He purchased uh, 96 acres so it wouldn't be developed and then donated that to Wildlands. And currently our South Mountain Preserve is now over 400 acres. Hmm. So those investments that, you know, the early Wildlands visionary leaders had put in place have really come to fruition and we've been adding to those existing nature preserves like South Mountain now over 400 acres and a great ecological and recreational destination. I wanted to also touch on funding because obviously these purchases require funds and you are a nonprofit organization. You have support from individuals and local corporate sponsors. Why do businesses get behind the mission of the Wildlands Conservancy? I know maybe the popular perception is that you know, it would be big business is all for development, but they're supporting you in these efforts. What, you know, why does it benefit them to do that? Yeah, that's another good question. And, you know, that gone are the days of the economy and the environment being opposed. In order to have a good economy, we need a good environment. In order to have a good environment, we need a good economy. You know, the message we have for our business community, again, we, and we're very fortunate with a very progressive business community here that understands this and gets it is, you know, they're in competition for, for knowledge workers, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to attract the, attract the brightest minds to, to their businesses to be successful. And, and guess what? Where, where do you want to live? You, you want to live in a place that has clean water and has clean air and has recreational assets and amenities and, and open space. And, and that's what Wildland Conservancy provides. It provides this community with the protection of its critical natural resources, the ecological value, the, the environmental value, and the, and the recreational value. And, you know, businesses understand that, is that, uh, you know, in order for them to be successful, we need the clean air and clean water, and we need livable communities. And, and, and really, Wildlands provides that work and has been providing that work for almost 50 years, you know, here in the Lehigh Valley. You think about, you know, would you want to live in a community that didn't have parks and didn't have trails? and didn't have clean water, and didn't have clean air, it'd be very difficult for a business to be successful in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're very fortunate to get businesses that, that understand that and you know support wildlands you know, in, in, in that regard. Right, live, live and work, really. And I, I, you know, these companies, I'm sure, want to re, you know, recruit people to this area, too. So I would imagine that's a factor. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge factor on, on not only getting them here, but also, you know, also retaining them, you know. And again, our, our vision for the Lehigh Valley is, is, you know, Lehigh Valley that contains, you know, clean water, protected natural areas, you know, working farms, you know, natural you know, protected areas all connected with a, a network of greenways and trails where, you know, nature and businesses and the community, you know, want to come, stay and, and, and flourish, you know. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the Lehigh Valley is a, you know, wonderful place to live, work, and play, and the work of Wildlands Conservancy has been really instrumental in that for, for the past almost 50 years. I want to also, um, we'll move next to to talking a little bit about some of the programming you have. You mentioned that, you know, in a typical year you have something like a thousand different programs. What are some of the, uh, some of those programs? Have they been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? If so, are they coming back now or are they coming back in a different form? I, I guess being an outdoors oriented, you know, organization, you have been able to have 
some things that other other groups haven't but i'm sure it's had an impact and you can talk a little bit about that we have about a thousand education programs a year we do a lot of school-based programming so we're in in the classrooms you know and we have a lot of field trips that come to now the Dorothy Rada Pula Sanctuary, but our other, other nature preserves. The best source of information on our programs is our website at www.wildlandspa.org. We also have a huge amount, probably about 400 or so community-based programs. And those community-based programs include hikes, tours of our nature preserves, animal presentations, you know, and those, those types of things. So not only are we able to serve the school districts, with uh, education programming that's tied to the Pennsylvania Academic Standards for Environment and Ecology, but we're also able to, you know, get the, the entire community out to our programs, out to see nature. And as I said earlier, you know, it's really important for us if we protect a piece of property and, and no one ever visits it, right, and no one ever knows it's there, and no one ever really understands nature or appreciates nature, how is that property going to be stewarded and protected and viable, you know, long term? So our education programming is really important for us to again develop that sense of stewardship you know for those natural resources what better way to get somebody in love with nature you know than to get them out you know i was very fortunate as i mentioned earlier on our call i had somebody my parents and, and my grandfather you know really worked to, to connect me to nature but let's face it not everyone in, in the community does and wildlands provides that that mechanism that opportunity you know to get people get kids out and adults out as well. We're hoping to develop that really lifelong connection and appreciation of nature. And again, our education programs really are award-winning, and they range from, as I mentioned, you know, hikes to tours of our of our nature preserves to specific education programming around any number of environmental topics. We also have really great programs like the bike and boat program. That's a national award-winning program. We started that about 20, oh, maybe like 24, 23 years ago. And that's a program where we take school-age children, middle school children, and community members on a four-mile canoe ride down the Lehigh River, and then we bike them back a four-mile bike ride on the DNL Trail. So it's a really great way to experience really the lifeblood of our community, which is the, the Lehigh River. And for many, it's kind of their first experience, you know, out on the river. And it's just a great, uh, a great program. We also have a program called Wild About Learning, where we take some of our animal ambassadors, our live animals. And we go into elementary schools and we have a live animal presentation. We read a book about that animal, again, to just foster that, that sense mm-hmm. of appreciation for nature and our natural resources. So the education program is really, really important to not only, again, get people connected to nature, but also you know, get them connected to, to, to wildlands and the work that we're doing you know, in the community. The second part of your question was, you know, the impacts of COVID. Yeah, we stopped in-person education programming last March. We transitioned to to really full virtual programming. Our staff did a wonderful job of being able to to pivot. We were doing virtual in-school presentations. We transitioned all of our birthday parties and and even some hikes into, into virtual hikes as well. Those were very popular more recently. We started to do some in-person programming, again, following all the pro- appropriate CDC guidelines. But we are you know, doing, some, doing some hikes on our property, doing some of the community-based programming, and that's been, been very successful. Most of those are, are, are sold out because we have you know, reduced the number of, of participants that are, are, are allowed, you know, again, to make sure we have the, the, the proper distancing and those types of things. So if you see a program on our website, sign up for it quickly because <laughs> many, if not all of them, end up you know, being sold out. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, you know, with, with, with COVID specifically, and, and this is, you know, maybe a, a little bit of a bright spot that may be coming out of, out of COVID is, you know, people, people didn't have much to do, right? They mm-hmm. were quarantined, you know, they were at home. And many people in the community turned to nature. You know, we, we have had record numbers of people on our local trails, on the river, in our nature preserves, you know, people were out experiencing nature because they, they, they weren't able to do much else, you know. Right. So it was a really great opportunity for them to, to learn more, you know, about wildlands, about our nature preserves. We were able to use a little bit of technology. We've developed now five apps for five of our most popular nature preserves. So you can, you know, download that app on the App Store, and that gives you a map and information about that particular, you know, all the wildlands conservancy nature preserves as well as information about our programming. 
So it's a great way to be able to you know get outside and experience the wonderful natural resources that we have and the wonderful nature preserves uh, that Wildlands owns and manages here in the Lehigh Valley and, and the Lehigh Watershed. So you know, my hope is that you know coming out of COVID, the community will will better understand how important of a role nature played you know during COVID and the fact that you know we need we need nature nearby. You know, we we all need nature for any number of reasons. Again, Wildlands Conservancy is the organization you know, in the region that's uh, helping provide those opportunities to the public. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And, and that's something I, I also had wanted to touch on because I remember like a year ago and, and you're right. I mean, I think, I think I had a story, like it was something, the headline was something like, it's okay to enjoy nature because everybody was just afraid of their own shadow almost at that point. And you really, you, yeah. you couldn't do much except go out into a field or you know on a trail and, and it was this time of year too so it was springtime and everything was beautiful that's a memory of of, of that time that i think i'll i'll always have but but hopefully that that appreciation that people had for nature will, will have a lasting impact you think I, yeah i i i think so and i, and I hope so as well i mean there was you know, a lot of generosity that, that we received from the community, you know, over the past year. I like to tell stories. So, you know, we were working uh, on, on one of our trails at, at our nature preserve. One of our staff members was there and the individual came past and they both had masks on and that type of thing. And, you know, the, the, the woman kind of, you know, moved out of the way. So she was, you know, six feet away. And as she was passing, she had said, uh, you know, do you need help with fixing that trail? And the individual, our staff member, said, "Yeah, here," and, and went to, you know, hand the shovel, you know, to her to, you know, to, to make light of the fact that she wanted help. And and she kind of she kind of laughed. She said, "Well, that that wasn't the the help I was referring to." And they kind of chatted a little bit. And you know, two days later, we got a we got a check in the mail for for twelve hundred dollars. Wow. Um, you know, she was just so appreciative of the fact that you know she had a place to go in nature, and uh, she wanted to to help make sure that the trails were were you know were maintained. And, Again, I just think those are, are really, you know, really bright spots, you know, that, that came out of this. That people were very generous and understood the, you know, the importance of uh, the importance of nature. And and there's many many other stories, but that's one that really hit home for me. Is you know, we're having an impact, a positive impact on 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 people's lives, and a positive impact here on our natural environment. And it's just great when when people recognize that and and are and are supportive of our mission. Absolutely. You also mentioned the bike and boat program. I wanted to give a shout out to that because I participated in that, I think, seven or eight years ago. And that was really awesome because, for one thing, I had never really had the the chance to be close to the Lehigh River before. I don't think I'd ever, I mean, maybe as a little kid, I, I touched it. But growing up in Bethlehem, it's it's difficult to access it because of the fact that the whole south side is train tracks and then the north side, I mean, I guess Sand Island, you can you can get pretty close to it. But I'd certainly never been on it before, and that was a totally new experience, and it was a lot of fun. So I would highly recommend that whenever yeah, it comes that's back. That's great. Uh, I'm glad you're a bike and boat alumni. Uh, <laughs> that's wonderful. I, I've run into into them all all throughout the Lehigh Valley. You know, the other program you want to check out is our Lehigh River Sojourn. The Lehigh River Sojourn is now in, we're celebrating our 25th year. Mm. Uh, that's going to put uh, take place this June from the June 26th to the 28th. And that's a 50 mile canoe ride on the Lehigh River. We take three days and we we paddle you know different sections of the river. We have staff naturalists talking about the natural resources, the education programs. We provide equipment, you know, catered meals, you know, the whole type of thing. So it's a really comfortable way for people to to experience nature firsthand. And like I said, it's hard to believe that, but we're in the 25th year of doing that. And it's hmm. literally been you know, thousands and thousands of people that have experienced, you know, the Lehigh River, you know, that way. Because you're right, Josh, you know, the, the, the river is not as accessible as you may think. Wildlands Conservancy did do a Lehigh River water trail and identified 22 access points along the river where you can get in to fish and to, and to kayak and canoe and those types of things. But you know, historically, the Lehigh River was one of the only rivers or the only river to be privately owned in the United States. Mm-hmm. It was owned by the Lehigh Coal Navigation Company. They own the power of the water. So for generations, people, the canal was on one side, the railroad was on the other, and it was owned by a, by a private company. So, you know, no one was really there. It was a very industrial river. It was used to, you know, transport coal and other materials through the canal. So for, 
really for generations, that river was not part of the community. It was an industrial river and served that purpose, but didn't serve a recreational purpose. So a lot of our efforts are designed around to, you know, again, getting people out on this wonderful natural resource that's right in our backyards and is, is the lifeblood, you know, of our, of our community. And it's so ironic that, you know, the history that so affected the quality of the river, because it's cleaner now than it's been the last 150 years, mm. but that history that so affected it really helped preserve it today because you have this wonderful corridor when we take people on the Lehigh River from Allentown to Bethlehem, they don't see anything except trees and right. nature and bald eagles and ospreys and herons. And again, it's because the river was privately owned and there wasn't a lot of quote-unquote development along the river other than you know some of the industrial activity, which I talked about before. So I always find that really ironic that the history that so affected it is really why we have this wonderful you know, greenway and, and natural resource today. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, and, and you can easily contrast it with like the Delaware River, which, you know, parts of it have homes right right up, you know, along the river. And you don't see that on the Lehigh, just trees, which is which is really cool. And, and the wildlife. Yeah. And, and, you know, having been with wildlands for the past 25 years and being on the river really my, my, my entire life, I, I took my first canoe trip on the Lehigh River probably when I was about about 10 or so. It's just remarkable how this river has, has returned and recovered. You know, when I was growing up, you know, you didn't really catch many fish. And, <laughs> and now, you know, there's, there's trout and there's smallmouth bass and there's suckers. And, you know, there's just a, a, a real great population there. We see a lot of great biological indicators. I mentioned before, you know, we're seeing bald eagles and osprey and cormorant and all different types of, of birds, you know, now, you know, along, along the river's corridor. You know, who would have thought that you would see a bald eagle on the Lehigh River, you know, 25 years ago? Right. <laughs> you know, it just, it, just, it just wouldn't have happened, you know. And now, for pretty many of our trips, we were seeing, you know, at, at least one bald eagle, you know, down, down on the Lehigh and, and several osprey and, you know, great blue heron. And, again, those are just really great biological indicators that the, that the river has, has, has returned and it's, it's much healthier. We still have a long way to go. We still have a lot of work to do. That's why the work of Wildlands Conservancy is so important. But it's really remarkable how that river has recovered. Yeah, and I think it's remarkable how how quickly people take bald eagles for granted because it was just a few years ago that you know it was something amazing to see one around here. And and the last couple of times I shared a picture of it of one on social media, I think people were like, "Oh, bald eagles! I see them all the time around here." It's like, well, <laughs> you're tired of yeah. them already. Those I'm are... not like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, I always say those are good problems to have, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, that's yeah. Facebook for you. Yeah. <laughs> you also are involved in, in stream restoration efforts, like with uh, removing dams. And could you maybe explain why that is an important thing to do for the health of the waterways? Yep. Our, our uh, ecological restoration work really focuses on, on the tributaries of the Lehigh River. We do a lot of work with a lot of state agencies and, and municipalities and private landowners to, to develop repairing buffers along along the streams, which is basically planting streamside vegetation that's really critically important to holding onto the stream bank, providing shade to the stream and providing nutrients with the leaf litter and those types of things. It also does a great job of removing uh, pollutants and sediment before it gets into the river. So repairing buffers is really a key component of what we do. We also do a lot of stream restoration work where we go in there and add in-stream habitat for fish or stabilized banks to make sure erosion doesn't take place. We also do work to remove unused or uh, you know dilapidated dams. The dams are really problematic when it comes to water quality because they're not natural features. They prevent fish migration and they also warm the water. Behind the dams typically there's a lot of sediment that gets deposited so it covers up the substrate uh, and the creek or the stream is, is, is ecologically not nearly as productive as it would be, you know, during regular, you know, moving and, and flowing water. And it also separates fish from, from, from spawning grounds as well. So mm. it can significantly impact, you know, the number of fish and the diversity of fish, you know, in our, in our ecosystems. Fortunately, the Delaware River is the longest, one of the longest undammed rivers in the country. The Lehigh River is a, is a tributary of that. So there's American eels and striped bass and American chad that all come up, you know, the Delaware and try to get up into these other tributaries. And our work is designed to make more of those tributaries, you know, accessible for these species that spend some time in the ocean and come back up to, to spawn 
and then we have all these streams. And you think about it, all the nutrients flow downstream, right, with the mm -hmm. water. So by bringing those species back into ecosystems, it is dramatic the way that those riverine systems recover because you're bringing nutrients back up into the system in the way of fish and, and fish eggs and spawning and those types of things. So it's really, really important to have those natural cycles take place. And when we have, you know, dams on those structures or on those creeks, it really prevents a lot of that, that natural process to continue. So our efforts really are designed around, you know, dams that are not utilized you know, for, for, for recreation or, or, or water supply or other purposes that really their purpose was, you know, 100 years ago to, to run a mill, which mm -hmm. is no longer, you know, in operation. So when those types of dams are, are there, we try to work with the property owners and, you know, develop strategies to, you know, to remove those and get that function back into a natural system. It's really interesting to me how within just a few generations, the value of some the rivers and the streams is, you know, has changed, you know, from something that was just a natural resource sort of to be exploited, you know, for industrial purposes to, you know, how we how we see it now. Hopefully, most of us do as as this, you know, something to be protected. But that yeah. really is evident from talking to you. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point. I mean, the river, particularly Lehigh, has has served our, our community really for for countless generations now. You know, it just served in different capacities. I mean, from the first Lenny Lenape Indians to, to sell along as banks, to the industrialists that brought us iron, cement, and, and steel, to the resident wildlife, to today, where, again, we have this wonderful natural resource that's in our backyard that's thriving, you know, with life and with people and, and recreational opportunities. It's just really great to see, you know, the, the Lehigh River is kind of like the, the comeback story, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it was always there, and uh, we, we abused it for, 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 for a long time, and and now we're, we're we're definitely taking better care of it, and it's uh, it's serving our community now in a in a recreational you know capacity and a natural capacity, whereas historically it was it was much more of an industrial capacity. Right, right, absolutely. I, I want to like sort of close out by by having you talk a little bit about how people can connect with you online. But before that, I, I wanted to ask about fundraisers and you know events for fundraising. Is that something that you see coming back? For the Wildlands Conservancy later this year. Uh, yeah, we're we're evaluating whether or not to to bring back some of our our traditional fundraising events again, just because of the COVID impacts. But there is information on our website of how individuals can donate and support Wildlands Conservancy uh, and our work at www.wildlandspa.org. There's information there to support the organization, support our our river work, our land preservation work recreational trail work, all those important initiatives are really made possible through the generosity of, of the Lehigh River watershed, you know, community. And as you can imagine, it takes a lot of resources to, to, to protect nature. So we, uh, you know, are always trying to raise additional dollars. The more money we raise, the more good we can do, you know, here in the Lehigh Valley to protect the Lehigh River and to protect the, the land that, that the, you know, that makes this region so special and, you know, connecting those kids and adults to nature. So, I encourage everyone listening to, to go on our website, find out more about wildlands, get out and experience nature firsthand, get to one of our nature preserves, and find ways in which you can support wildlands. In addition to financially supporting wildlands, we do offer, you know, volunteer opportunities, you know, at our, at our nature preserves and some of our, of our trail work and, and, and cleanup. So there's many ways that individuals of all ages can be part of, of, of Wildlands Conservancy and be part of uh, protecting what makes this region so special. Fantastic. Well, I would I would echo what you just said and encourage everybody to to visit the website and you know connect with you on social media as well. I know they'll find the links to do that on the website, along with a lot more information. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Josh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me and get out and experience nature. Definitely, you've inspired me. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much. Thanks. We've been recording No Rain Dates since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at 
No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Saucon Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Every night, he climbs the tower, sees your face on every dollar.